Welcome, everyone. So good to be with you. Sort of weird to not be just looking at a camera. It's uh, good to have you guys this morning. Um, if we haven't met, my name is Tony. I'm glad you are here. Um, we have kids ministry today. And so if you are a kid and want to hang out with some other kids, uh, the teachers are over here. And parents, you'll know, they'll go with the teachers right now, and then the kids will be brought back uh, at the end of service. So after I speak, we'll do one song at the end, and the kids will start kind of trickling in if we do the timing right, just about then. Um, just so you guys know, and you know your kids will be brought back to this space. You know, this morning, I, um, as I was here, coming into the building, I was reminded of actually the first Sunday that I came and taught here nearly four years ago when we started this church plant. And I remember standing up here just so uncertain how things would turn out. Like I, just rem I remember that viscerally, like standing on the corner, coming up onto the stage, you know, and we felt like God had called us down here, so we came. The truth is, though, we had had all these prayer and discernment times before we came here. And at all these prayer and discernment times, we were up in Washington, we had this group praying, right? And they, this group, like it was different people each time, and every time we gathered to pray, they kept going back to Isaiah 43, verse 19. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And each time we gathered to pray, it was like, again? You know, again? Eventually, I was like, God, okay, we get it, you know? But the truth is, I needed that repetition. Because when I came here, when our family came here to do this church plant nearly four years ago, right, we had a lot of doubt and worry and fear about what would happen. And actually, my first Sunday here, I taught, about, taught out of Luke 5 and the calling of the disciples, right? And there was this choice the disciples had, like, you know, they're, they're doing their nets, they're doing their fishing thing, and there's this question of, will they leave their nets and follow Jesus? Will they stay with what is comfortable, or will they follow the invitation of God? And I literally, as I was thinking about this this week, I was up in my office, and I just started weeping. I literally just laid on the ground and just wept. One of those, like, snotty, ugly cries that your grad, no one is there with you. Because as I have looked back over the last four years, it has just been unbelievable how faithful God has been, how he's been with us at every step of the journey. Now, you might be wondering, you know, why I'm reminiscing, you know, like, why start a sermon this way? Well, I think we're kind of at another starting point right now. We're at this point, right, we've just been almost separated for a year. We've done outside services. We've done online stuff. We're like in this transition back to whatever this new normal is, but it's clearly a transition. And I look back and I see the faithfulness of God throughout this whole time. The mere fact that we are here today illustrates to me that God has been faithful. I think the question for me today is whether we will continue to trust Him through this transition. You know, there was a, a small group of people that were here before we came to do this church plant. 
And they were offered this choice. They were told, your church is like a field. And you're in one corner of that field and you have the keys to the tractor and God is in the other corner and he is sitting in the tractor with his hand extended saying, will you give me the keys? Will you set aside your preferences? Will you set aside your ideas of control? And are you willing to give God the keys to do what he wants with the field? And this small group of people, before I arrived, said, yeah, yeah, God, we give you control. We give you the keys to the tractor that you can do what you want with the field. And I guess as we gather at this sort of restarting point, I just wonder if we need to do something similar. I wonder if we need to take a moment at, on ho- at home, on your couch, or in here, in a pew, to set aside our preferences, just as they did. And I want to ask us to do something a little odd. I want to ask us to do something that maybe we won't, maybe didn't feel like we came in expecting to do. I want to invite you to say a prayer with me that is sort of reminiscent to how we started this whole thing, about setting aside our preferences. And sometimes I think it's actually helpful to get our bodies involved. So I'm going to ask you to do something that we don't normally do. So if this is your first time, I'm sorry. We don't do this every Sunday. But I think this is a window maybe into who we are. We want to be a people who takes God seriously and takes ourselves a little less seriously. So what I want to invite you to do, if you are physically able, I want to invite you actually to get on your knees as an expression of humbling yourself before God. Now, if you can't do that, maybe you just open your hands. Totally get it. If you're holding a baby or you're not physically able. And whether you're at home or in this building, I just invite you to say this prayer with me. It'll be projected so that you can say it with me. Lord, this morning, as we enter into this new season, we give you again our preferences. We set before you our lives. You are good. You are kind. You are faithful. We trust you. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, Indeed, by what we have done and what we have left undone, we have not always loved you with our whole heart. We have not always loved our neighbors as ourselves. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. I thank you for your willingness to do that. You know, this is your first Sunday. Welcome to Wellspring. Um, We don't always do that. But I I think it's important sometimes to get our bodies involved as a way of saying, you know, this is not just something I'm saying with my lips, but I want my whole life to be a life, right, that's saying, all right, God, yes to your will. 
Now, we're in a series going through the Old Testament. We're sort of in this long journey. I have to admit, the first time I read uh, the book of Genesis, I was really concerned about memorizing information. I didn't grow up in the church, so I didn't listen to a lot of sermons. I didn't get all the, like, 15 years of kids' ministry. And so everyone else knew these names, and I was confused. Has anyone ever, like, worried about that or felt insecure? Yeah, I remember, like, feeling like, oh, my gosh, these people know all these names. Like, who's married to whom? Like, I, I could not keep the couples and their kids straight at all. And it took me a while, and so I felt kind of insecure about it. And eventually, I sort of learned enough that my insecurity and anxiety decreased enough, and I started to pay attention to who God was in the Bible. And actually, I, I focused a lot on Jesus in the New Testament. Watch how Jesus was with people, especially people that didn't feel like they always belonged, right? Gathering in tax collectors, gathering in prostitutes, inviting all these people to be with him. And eventually, he'd give himself for them. Now, you might be wondering what this has to do with the Old Testament. Well, as we've said repeatedly throughout this series, right, the New Testament is not in isolation. Right? The Old and New Testament are one story. And it's actually in Genesis that we learn about God's desire to be with his people. God is, yes, with Adam and Eve in the garden. He does make a lot of promises to Abraham. I want to focus this morning on a story that involves a man named Jacob, who's actually the grandson of Abraham. Now, if you don't know all the details, I'm going to give you a couple of them just to sort of tease it out so you don't have to worry about knowing all the names. Right, so there's a guy named Abraham and his wife Sarah, and they have a kid named Isaac. And then Isaac marries a woman named Rebecca, and they have two kids named Esau and Jacob. Now, these two kids, they're very different from one another, Esau and Jacob. Now, to make a longish story short, and if you want to read it, it's in Genesis 25 to 27. Check it out on your own time. Right now, I'm going to do the quick cliff note. So Jacob's mom actually helps Jacob trick his father, Isaac, into blessing him instead of his older brother, Esau, who really is entitled to the, first, uh, the blessing as the firstborn son. Now, because of this tricking, Jacob has to flee his family's house ASAP, right? Esau is this burly guy. Jacob's kind of a homebody. There is no way if he went toe-to-toe with Esau, he would win. So he flees. His mom sends him actually, to her brother, this guy named Laban. Now, a little text, a little bit of um, geography here. So sometimes we just read, okay, so he got sent to Laban. But this is a 457-mile walk from Beersheba to Haran. That's like walking from San Jose to San Diego. Like, I remember when I went to college, my family drove me in a car from the Bay Area to Southern California, and I was nervous just to be on my own. This is the first time that Jacob has really left his family. This is the first time that Jacob has had to live life, you know, on his own, and he has a 457-mile walk to do by himself. Can you imagine that? Up to this point, the God 
of Jacob's family has been his God. It's unclear whether he's actually owned his relationship to this God or not. Now, after day one of the journey, he lays down for the night. And one wonders, you know, as a homebody, how Jacob feels right now. Like, how would you feel? Walk for 20 to 30 miles. You get to a place where you don't know anyone. So rather than sleeping in a comfy bed, you end up on the ground, under the stars, unsure who might be around. Then he has this dream. Let me read it to you. This is Genesis 28, 12 through 15. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you live, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread out abroad to the west and to the east and the north and the south. And in you, your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. And will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Kind of an interesting dream. If I'm honest, I have read this dream many, many times. And I sort of skip over it. Kind of like those dreams you have at night. I don't know if you can think of one. You're just like, I have no idea what to do with that dream. You know? Anyone ever had that? Anyone ever had a dream that they felt like God was actually talking to them through? A couple people? Let's unpack this dream a little bit. Right, the text says that there's this ladder, and this ladder is connecting right, heaven and earth. What's interesting, though, is there's actually some debate on whether it's a ladder. In Hebrew, actually, it can be a ladder or a staircase. Those are two perfectly good translations. And contextually, actually, many theologians wonder whether it might be a staircase instead. See, the pe- people of ancient Mesopotamia used to build these big, broad stone staircases. And they would build them on these artificial mountains that they would actually build as well. These are called ziggurats. There's actually an incredibly famous one in Ur that the Pope visited this last week. I don't know if you heard about this. This is a picture of it. This is a ziggurat in Ur. It's probably one of the most famous ziggurats in the world, right? So much so that the Pope goes and checks it out. Also have to remember, where is Abraham's family from? Ur. So they, it's likely right here that Jacob actually has a dream about a staircase that looks strikingly similar to this idea of a ziggurat. Basically, the ancient Mesopotamian people believed that the gods lived on top of this ziggurat and they would build a temple up there so that they could worship the gods. And you have this idea of this staircase. And the angels, right, are going up and down. And the angels going up and down is a way of communicating that, you know, the difference, the distance between heaven and earth maybe isn't as big as we think. That maybe the messengers and the presence of God connect heaven and earth. In a dream in English, it says that God is standing above Jacob at the top of the staircase. This is totally possible. 
Now, this is interesting. I don't generally do this with text. But in Hebrew, actually, the word above isn't there. That literally does not exist in Hebrew. It just says, the Lord is standing. And again, theologians are really divided here about where he might be standing. And I actually think contextually, it's much more likely that he's standing at the bottom of the staircase. And this actually, you might just be like, who cares where he's standing? Well, I think it matters. Because in verse 15, God will say, behold, I am with you. Right? I'm not above you. I am with you. So it makes sense to me to assume that God is actually at the bottom of the staircase, standing beside Jacob. And this also sheds more light contextually, too. In ancient Mesopotamia, right, there was this assumption that one needed to ascend the staircase in order to meet with God. God was de facto hard to reach. It took effort to get to him, right? God wasn't in the normal space of our everyday life. You actually had to exit the normal space, walk up the staircase, and connect with God. But that is exactly what I think God is challenging here with Jacob. Richard Bachman writes this, theologian, he says, to discover that God is with us is probably the most important discovery anyone can make. For, once made, it colors all of life's experiences. And in this text, right, God is saying to Jacob, I am with you. When I was thinking about this text, I was reminded of a season of my life. I had just moved, our family had just moved from San Jose up to Washington. And the truth is, I was in kind of a cynical season. God felt really distant. I'd enter into worship, kind of space like this, and I felt a little crunchy. And I was just like, I don't even know if I want to be here. I remember our staff team, when we got up into Washington, we went to this like staff retreat. And I didn't really want to be there. I was kind of grumpy. I was kind of irritated that I even had to go. I was like, I got work to do. And we gathered in a circle to do some songs. And this guy named Adam, who was our worship leader, started playing. And everyone else was sitting there sort of politely singing in their chair. And all of a sudden, I was overwhelmed by the presence of Jesus. And it was this moment where literally I could not even sit in my chair. And again, I know I'm back to like the snotty crying stories, but like I was literally laying on the ground, kind of like shaking, crying, while everyone else is sort of sitting there awkwardly like trying to sing and I'm like falling apart on the ground. I didn't expect that. It was in that moment when Jesus drew near. It totally washed away my cynicism. It just washed away all the doubt and crud I was carrying into that moment. Right? It colored my life. I remember leaving, leaving that space, that retreat, and I remember I would go on walks. In, in Washington, it was always in the rain. Go on these walks. And I would just walk around and I would have my hand out like this, just as a way of reminding myself physically that Jesus was right next to me wherever I walked, holding my hand. 
And I think this is somewhat what God is trying to tell Jacob in this story, that he's going to be with him. Yeah, sure, God reiterates the promises he made to Abraham totally, right? He's going to get land, he's going to have descendants, he's going to be a blessing to the nation. But honestly, these promises don't deal with Jacob's immediate needs, He is alone on a 457-mile walk to his uncle's house. He has just left his family. He is totally alone and into this unknown future. And God says to him, Jacob, in the midst of this moment, I am with you. I think that's what Jacob needed to hear. I think the truth is, right, as we are in this journey through this pandemic, into this sort of weird transitional moment. I think God is wanting to say to us too, like, I am with you. And then Jacob wakes up from his dream. The story reads in Genesis 28, 16, and 17, then Jacob woke for his dream and surely, and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. What's important to know here, though, is that Jacob wasn't looking for God. He's just on this journey to Haran. He's fleeing from his brother. He's in the midst of his everyday life. And God reveals himself that he's there. Just as I wasn't looking for God on that staff retreat, but God, in the midst of my cynicism, in the midst of my doubt, he reveals himself. He shows up. Now in verse 16, right, Jacob says to himself, the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. But what he does next is important. He presumes that God is specifically in this place. Surely this place where I slept last night is obviously the home of God and the gate of heaven. If I step over here, maybe he's not there. And I think there's truth in what he's saying. God seems to be particularly present in that place. Just as for many of you, God is particularly present in this place, in this actual building. You know that people have been praying and worshiping in this place for 130 years. Through World War I, the development of the automobile, women getting the right to vote through the Depression, through Hitler and the Holocaust, the invention of the television, the civil rights movement, the Cold War, the invention of the internet, 9-11, and today. People have been worshiping and praying in this space. And yet, what, while what Jacob says is accurate, it isn't actually the deepest truth of what God is trying to communicate in this dream. What God is saying is, yeah, I'm present in this place, but more importantly, he is going to be where Jacob is. Verse 15 says that God is with Jacob and will stay with him wherever he goes. Feel the import of that difference. 
right? If Jacob can return to Bethel, that's great. If he's in Beersheba, it's a day's walk. But if he's in Haran, you know, that's 430 or whatever miles away. And that's where he'll spend the next 20 years. If God is just in that place, he's not going to be seeing much of God over the next two decades. And likewise, right, today, whether you are in this building or you're watching at home, God is with you. Right, over this last year, when we were watching at home, doing church in our houses, doing it outside, watching online, in here, wherever you were, right, God says, I will be with you. Big picture, what's important about this story in Genesis is this is the first time in the entire Bible that God makes an explicit commitment to be with his people. Right? Not simply do things for them, but this is the first time he makes an explicit commitment to be with his people. And as Jacob journeys throughout his life, right, not just on this trip, God will be with him. Over 20 years later, Jacob will actually return to Bethel right, after serving for 20 years in his uncle's house. And he will again build an altar at Bethel and he'll look back on his life. And in Genesis 35.3, he will say, God has been with me wherever I have gone. Right, as he finished that long walk to Haran, God was with him. Right, as he worked for his uncle as a shepherd for 20 years, God was with him. As he made that trip back to Bethel, God was with him. And years later, after having a bunch of kids, after his son Joseph being sold as a slave, and he's told, right, that he has died. And then he's forced to go to Egypt because of a famine. And there he remembers and runs into his son Joseph, who now is the second in command of Egypt. After all of this, Jacob will say again in Genesis 48, 15, God has been my shepherd all of my life to this day. And Jacob knows what it means to be a shepherd. He's not just like riffing poetic. Earlier in his life, right, for 20 years, he will shepherd sheep for Laban. And being in the shepherd in the Middle East isn't like being a shepherd in Ireland, right? In Ireland, you have like a little 100-acre plot with a fence. The sheep are there. You like are on social media just like, oh, this is so boring, right? Like the sheep aren't going anywhere and they got plenty of food. If you're in the Middle East, right, you're having to wake up early with those sheep and then take them out into wild places where beasts live, you're having to protect those sheep. You're having to lead them to green pasture, which is like little pockets of weeds in the canyons. You're having to lead them to running water, mahayim, right, living water, places where the sheep can drink. You are with them so much that the sheep actually recognize the voice of the shepherd from every other human voice. Psalm 23, 1 through 4 captures this beautifully. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for 
you are with me. But just as Jacob led the sheep, the green pastures, still waters, through those dark, shadowy canyons where animals lurked, so God, at the end of his life, he says, has been with me like a shepherd. Right, through the ups and downs of life. Right, Jacob is the first person in biblical history to get this explicit assurance, I am with you. And what's amazing, actually, is when you fast forward to the New Testament, this promise from God given explicitly to Jacob is then extended to all of the disciples of Jesus. At the end of Matthew's Gospels, Jesus is standing beside his disciples. And the text says in verse 17 that some of them worship him and some of them doubted. Not all of them are holy and got their act together. They're like, I don't know about this thing, Jesus. Just like Jacob in Bethel, after having deceived his family and then has to run away. Jesus says to them, all authority has been given to him on heaven and earth. And he sends his disciples out to make disciples of the nations. Verse 20, he says, behold, I am always with you to the end of the age. Right? Just as he was with Jacob from that moment, that first moment in Genesis 28 at Bethel through the whole of his life, he says that he will be with you and me. Right? The promise of God's accompanying presence is here renewed and extended by implication to us no matter where you go, to another state or a country, God is going to. No matter whether you go to work or the laundromat or Trader Joe's or attend service in this building or online, God is with you. Now, as we consider, like, what does this look like then in everyday life? Right? What does it look like for us to lean into this truth in the, in the hopeful moments and the harder moments of everyday life. This week I did a little bit of research uh, into loneliness, actually, in the United States. Did you know that even before the pandemic, three out of five adults in America said that they were lonely? Three out of five. And if you use social media a lot, it actually goes up exponentially. So now 75% of people who use social media a lot experience even more loneliness. And actually the loneliest demographic in the United States before the pandemic were 18 to 22 year olds. And, that's our, and that was before the pandemic, right? Before all of us spent the most disconnected year ever in American history separated from one another. Now, as our country starts to emerge, I think, from the isolation of the pandemic, right, I, I think we do. We need embodied community. That's why we're gathering in person. That's why we're moving towards being with one another in embodied ways. But I also think, I think it's important for us to realize that being together in person isn't going to solve everything. Remember, American loneliness was going through the ceiling before the pandemic began. 
I think many of us, many of the people in this room who are deeply committed to Jesus, deeply believe in Jesus and his gospel, I think sometimes we forget that God is actually with us. I don't think we forget the theology, but I think we forget as an experiential reality that God is literally with us wherever we go. As I was walking down this morning, there's a a little frame with a quote uh, above our kids' check-in area over here, and it's a quote by Dallas Willard, and it's connected to this story. It's this guy named John Ortberg, who's a pastor up at Menlo Park, um, no longer at Menlo Park Prez, but he's still doing a lot. And Anyway, this was a number of years ago, so he was at Willow Creek, and he had a mentor, this guy named Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard was the head of philosophy at USC, and he, he had this guy, he, you know, he'd call Dallas and he'd say, you know, Dallas, I need some help with this. And he's juggling a lot in his life. He's got kids, he's got ministries, all these things, right? So he calls Dallas, he wants some help. He's like, Dallas, give me some guidance. Gets on the phone. Dallas, give me a nugget of wisdom, right? And Dallas says this to him. And he's kind of known for these long pauses. So John's on the phone with him and he's like, Dallas, you know, give me some wisdom to navigate life. And Dallas says this quote. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. That's what he says to John. John's like, awesome, write it down. Yes, this is good stuff. What's next? Now, John, Dallas, what, what else do I need to know? And there's this long, awkward pause that Dallas is known for. And Dallas says to him, there is nothing else. I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, really? Come on, hurry? Seriously, there are way more important theological topics than hurry. You know, maybe this is just contextual to John's life at that time. He's juggling a lot. But I started to think about it. Maybe Dallas Willard is actually on to something. Because I think hurry often is the very thing that separates us from the tangible, relational, and experiential presence of God with us. Right, the Hebrew prayer book in Psalm, in the Psalms says this, be still and know that I am God. There's lots of reasons we hurry. You know, I think we could list them off, right? One is maybe like accomplishment. We're like, Man, I got a goal. I want to get an A instead of a B. I want to rock this presentation to get this promotion, whatever. Like, we want to accomplish things. On the other side, maybe we just want to distract ourselves. We're just like, well, I'm going to hop from distraction to distraction just so I don't have to deal with what's going on, right? Either way, however we slice it, hurry separates us from the presence of God with us. I'm not saying, you know, we need to go on a rock on some deserted island just so we have nothing around us. I don't think that's God's promise to Jacob, right? His promise is to go with him wherever he goes, not an invitation into being alone and never interacting with people or doing everyday life. Right? Jacob, God promises to be with Jacob when he's a shepherd in his grief over his son's loss. Right? In it all, God promises to be with him, not just in the breaks he has from everyday life, reading the Bible and those things, but in the, all the moments of life. But how do we do this? 
I want to propose two different um, ways in, two different tools, approaches that I think might be helpful. The first is a practice that Christians have been doing literally for hundreds of years. It's called the examine. Essentially, it's in the morning, just ask God, hey God, would you help me to see your presence today? Just invite him to give you eyes to see. And then second, at the end of the day, check back in with God and say, all right, God, where were you present? Pretty simple. But it's a way of reminding us about the presence of God in the morning and in the evening. That's the examine. I think doing a practice like that can be really helpful to remind you that God is with you. The second practice is a little different, and it's about re-narrating our longings. Let me give you an example. So too often, I think we sort of understand our search for God purely in terms of our, like, holy choices. I read the Bible this morning. I went to church today. And we think, man, I'm searching for God. Now, that's great. I think that's true. That's not untrue. But I do think it limits our search for God just to those moments when we're kind of rocking it spiritually. But I think the truth is, I think the truth is a little more profound than that. (laughs) That was an amen, I think. Thank you. I'll let the kids sort of trickle in. So what I was saying is, I think we need to sort of figure out how to re-narrate our search for God and our understanding of it. And sometimes I think we think of our longings purely in terms of the good or holy choices we make, right? I read the Bible, I went to church, whatever. But the truth is, our longing to be with Jesus is not just expressed in our good choices. It's also expressed when we're sitting at home, scrolling through Netflix, looking for another show to watch. It's also expressed when we go back to the fridge for the third time that night, looking for another scoop of mint chip ice cream to distract ourselves from what we're feeling. Augustine has this quote. He says this, Our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. And what he's trying to say is all of these expressions, whether they are holy or broken, good or not so helpful, they are all mirrors. They are all ways of seeing our search for God. That when I'm flicking through Netflix, I'm not just looking for a show. I'm looking for the presence of Jesus in my life. And when I'm going back to the fridge, right, I'm not just wanting mint chip ice cream. I'm actually wanting to be comforted by the presence of Jesus. I would just invite you this week, if you can, look at your search for God a little bit different, your longing for His presence, not just in the good choices, but also in some of those broken rhythms. Also in some of those places where you might think, what am I doing here again? Maybe that is an expression of, or an invitation to slow down. Why am I going back to the fridge? 
Why am I just endlessly on social media or online? What am I doing right now? Oh, I actually really want more than anything to be with Jesus in this moment and I am settling for lesser things. That maybe that's an invitation to slow down and stop and say, okay, God, you are here. May I settle and slow down into your presence. Whatever is going on in me. My friends, God is with us. I think if we do these practices, it'll help us to awaken that his presence isn't simply, you know, when we take breaks from our everyday life, but he's with us throughout all the days of our life. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. We're going to sing one last song about the goodness of God. I just invite you uh, to sort of just enter into a posture of prayer, and then as the worship team sings, I invite you to stand with us as we sing. Lord Jesus, we just, in this season of transition, God, in this moment where life is just kind of tricky, we're juggling so much, God, we just ask that you would remind us of your enduring presence. God, you would ground us wherever we are this morning, in a pew, in a chair, in a couch. God, that you are sitting with us. That you're not just on top of the ziggurat, but you're actually at the bottom, in the midst of of Jacob's life. God, that you promise to go with us everywhere and be with us always. God, may we settle into that reality. May we experience your presence in ways that changes us. God, we invite you to reveal yourself to us at deeper levels that we might know you and be set free by your presence.